Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Numbers. God had proven himself merciful and just throughout the history of Israel. God had brought out the children of Israel from their enslavement in Egypt. He had given them his moral law. God also gave the Israelites their civil and ceremonial laws by which they would know how to live in God's presence and among God's people. But the Israelites were unfaithful, being rebellious towards his instructions and complaining about God's ways. Israel lost thousands of people while in the desert wilderness due to their rebellious nature. Would God continue to be merciful to a people that continue to be faithless? We join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 21, verse 10. Baseball's always been my first love from a sports perspective. I like other sports, but I grew up playing baseball. There's kind of a romanticism to it to me. And so last year, seeing the Cubs and the Indians in the World Series was exciting because one of sports history's most lovable losers was guaranteed to finally be crowned a winner since both of them were lovable losers. Neither of them had had any success for a very long time. It was guaranteed that someone was going to win. It was game seven and extra innings, and it seemed like no one was going to win. I actually wondered if the end of the world would happen right there, and they just, you know, the, Cleveland, the Indians or the Cubs would never win. It happened, and, you know, and one was crowned a winner. The uh, Cubs were. Well, this year, the Houston Astros won the World Series for the first time as an organization, just four years after losing 111 games. That's a pretty big turnaround. And it's always nice to see someone who's lost for a long time finally win. Maybe someday it will be the Magic's turn. But Israel's been losing for 37 years. But something changed last week, didn't it? They finally owned their sin, and despite their trials, things started to look up. And you know what? Maybe your story's similar. Maybe you've had lots of mistakes, lots of failures. And like Israel, tonight can be the start of the turnaround. The good news is that unlike the Indians or the Cubs or the the, the Astros or even the Magic, your GM has unlimited resources. And so he has whatever it takes to create a winner. So are you tired of losing? Tonight's the night to start the turnaround. So chapter 21, verse 10. And the children of Israel set forward and they pitched in Oboth and they journeyed from Oboth and pitched at Aijah Abiram in the wilderness, which is before Moab toward the sun rising. From thence they removed and pitched in the valley of Zered. And from thence they removed and pitched on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that comes out of the coasts of the Amorites. For Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon. And at the stream of the brooks that goes down to the dwelling of Ar and lies upon the border of Moab. And from there they went to Be'er, that is the well whereof the Lord spoke unto Moses. Gather the people together and I will give them water. And then Israel sang this song. Spring up, O well, sing you unto it. The princes digged the well, and the nobles of the people digged it, by the direction of the lawgiver with their staves. And from that wilderness they went to Matanah. We read the story here, and then they're traveling. Up to this point, it's been trial, grumble, trial, grumble, trial, grumble, whatever, and then judgment. Here, we see no evidence of that here in this part. They're traveling, traveling, traveling. They come to a place where they need water. God provides for them, and they sing a song. And it's, you know, it's almost like, you know, going from, you know, like a blues club to this, like a happy birthday song. It's just like, wow, everything's different. Things are starting to look up. Before we get to that point, though, they take some journey. So they've been down here, down on the east, southeastern coast of Edom, but they're going to begin making their journey toward the promised land. So from verse 
10 where we started to where we ended, they're going from here to there. So quite a distance. They're skirting around the eastern border of Edom and then around the eastern border of Moab. And we'll explain that in a second. But here we see victory number one is that in the journey around Edom and Moab, um, the Lord provides for them. It says here in verse 10, the children of Israel set forward and they pitched in Oboth. Now Oboth there means water skins. So it was probably an oasis or spring along the eastern borders of Edom, which would have been a good place then to camp for a bit. But Deuteronomy tells us a little bit more about something else that happened when they were here in Oboth. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2. And you're going to want to keep your finger there because we're going to go back and forth because Deuteronomy 2 gives us quite a bit more information about these travels and gives us a bit of insight why they're listed here and why they're important to our text. And they're right there on the east coast of Edom. And if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 2 and we look at verse 29. Notice here it says, well, this is where uh, Sion, they had asked a Sion king of, king of Heshbon for food in 28. But then it mentions in verse 29, as the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, and the Moabites, which dwelt in Ar, did unto me. Wait a second. I thought we read last time that the Edomites wouldn't give them anything. They wouldn't sell them any food, wouldn't let them travel through their land. They were unfriendly, came out to fight with them at the borders. Well, they did initially, but that was on the mountains, on the western border. As Israel goes down south, they go all down around here, and then they come up on the eastern side. That's at the point where now all of a sudden, the Edomites there they begin to be friendly toward them. They begin to have a different attitude towards Israel and they sell them food. And you know what I find really cool about that? There was no expectation that that would happen. This was a people who looked like they were gonna be ready to go to war with Israel over getting anywhere near their land and God provides for them even though things looked as awful as that at the first. God knew that was going to happen. That wasn't a surprise to him. They simply needed to trust him. Remember last week where they got all frustrated and upset and the way discouraged them? It says their soul became discouraged and then they started complaining about God himself. The Lord was gonna take care of all those needs, even though the path would be difficult. And so God provides for them through the Edomites here. Now we move to verse 11 and so it says they journeyed from Oboth and they pitched at Aij Abiram in the wilderness, which is before Moab, toward the sun rising. The phrase Aja Abiram, it means the ruins of the crossing. So this would be an abandoned uh, spring or oasis right before the border of Moab and Edom. So the Moab and Edom is, the border is kind of right here. Again, the Lord's providing for them with an oasis in their journey, providing them the water that they need. And when it says, which is before Moab towards the sun rising, it means they're on that, it's just telling you they're on the eastern side of Edom. If you have a map that tells you Israel went this way to get to Moab and whatever, please tear it out of your Bible and throw it out. No one seriously thinks they went that way. The problem is, is that when they first started doing these archaeological digs and stuff, they couldn't find half these places. And so they're like, oh, Israel couldn't have gone that way. And then they made them do a way that was exactly opposite of the scripture. That is not the way they went. So if your Bible map tells you that, like I had a few people last week say, my Bible map told me something different. That's fine. Your Bible map's not inspired. You can take it out of your Bible. That is not the way they went. They went the long way around, all right? From that oasis, verse 12 says, they removed, they picked their camp up, and they eventually camped again in the valley of Zered. Now, the border between Moab and Edom was a large valley, a large wadi. That's basically a valley that's dried except in the rainy season. So normally when it's not rainy season, it's just a dry area where you walk through and there's mountains on both sides. So then when it's rainy season, it's actually a river and this river goes to the Dead Sea. So that's that waterway that you see right here. So they're right around here on the border at the end of that valley. That's what Zered is here. 
They're about to cross over into the Moabite border is what that means, which we'll get to that in a moment of why that's important. But in three verses so far, Israel's traveled about 200 miles. I mean, we've taken them from somewhere down here all the way up here. And they have come quite a long way at this point. And you know, that takes time for a group this big. What's interesting is that Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that this stop here in the valley of Zered, it marked the 38th year of wandering. So the 39th year after leaving Egypt. We only have one year left before the entire first generation will have died out and they will go into the promised land. This is why it's called the 40 years in the desert. So they had one year from Egypt to Sinai and then 37 years of going in circles a year to get to this point, and then another year before they cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. That's a big detour of 40 years, 39 years, and a lot of lost time because of poor decision-making. And so, I mean, I think the lesson that we can learn from that is we need to trust the Lord, right? You know, don't detour your life by being stubborn and not trusting God. Now, verse 13, from the Valley of Zered, it says they removed and they pitched on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that comes out of the coasts of the borders of the Amorites. For Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. From here, we've gone quite a ways. Their next stop right here, they're at the river. They're going to go all the way up here. They're about to get to the border between Moab and this little tiny kingdom of Heshbon that King Og ruled over. They're about to cross over that, that river. They're right on the word other side just means they're on the other side of the riverbank of the Arnon. And the Arnon is a very large wadi uh, currently serving as the border between the Moabites and the Amorites. Now, Israel at this point can't continue to go north. See that land right there, Ammon? They're not allowed to invade Edom, Moab, or Ammon because they're all family. Ammon and Moab are the descendants of Lot. Remember? He thought the world was over and decided to sleep with his daughter. Or I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. The daughters thought the world was over and decided to sleep with their father. And so they had children from that, the Ammonites and the Moabites. So they're family. Weird family, but family. The Edomites, of course, we learned last week, they're the descendants of Esau, so they're also family. These are lands that God had given to them, and therefore Israel was not to invade them. Now, They were not friendly people necessarily, and there were wars fought between Israel and them, and there were times when Israel controlled those areas because of those wars that were fought. But God never called them to invade that land and to displace them, and it's because God had promised that land to Lot and to Esau. So they can't just go straight up north. They can't just keep going this way. They have to now begin to make a western turn. And so the Arnon River is that little blue slip or sliver right there. So they're right over here about to get to that. And so they're going to have to begin to make that western turn. Now, in making that western turn, they are going to leave the desert for the first time for a very long time. And they're going to come into a very lush area. You know, everything's going to change now. They're going to start seeing grassland around them. They're going to see land for their herds. Life's going to start getting a lot better. That means uh, food and water are plenty. It will be very easy to think, oh, we finally made it. And to get their eyes off the Lord as their source. So one of the things we're going to find out is how will they handle it when God tests them with disappointment this time? It's easy to be disappointed when you're in the desert. But now when you expect things to be better and disappointment comes, how do you handle it? 
And so we'll get to that in a moment. You might be saying, well, why can they go this way? Why aren't they disallowed from going this way? Well, see, the Amorites are up there. And there is no such prohibition of them fighting against the Amorites. They are a problem people to God. They are the ones that God said he would judge. And so that's why they're going to go that way. They're going to begin to make that Western turn very soon. Before we find out how Israel handles that detour... Moses explains why that Western turn, whether they're going to trust God, even in plenty, Moses explains why their time on the detour around Edom was so important, enough that they included it in a different book. Verse 14 says, wherefore, as I get to the end of this desert journey, wherefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. So the idea is this is why we wrote a book. Now, the book of the wars of the Lord is not some lost book of scripture. Don't let anyone ever come and tell you there are books of the Bible that are missing. Just because the Bible references a book doesn't mean that book is inspired. Paul quotes two pagan poets in the book of Acts. That doesn't mean those poets were inspired by God. It means that when Paul was speaking and using those poets as an illustration, he was inspired by God. Moses, in making a reference to this book here, is inspired by God. But the book of the words of the Lord is just a book. It's just like any book you could pick up. It's like the measure of a man. Great book, but it's not inspired, okay? This is the only thing that's inspired. So the book of the wars of the Lord is not missing, and don't let anyone tell you that. That's a common argument that the Mormons make and say, well, you, know, you have problems with our book of Mormon. Where's your, where's your book of the wars of the Lord? And the Christians, you know, a lot of times they, they hear it and they're like, huh, I've never even heard about that before. And then they don't know how to answer it. Don't let people sidetrack you like that. Don't let them say, well, we've got extra books because you're missing your extra books. And it's like, no, 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 you hold on. Don't distract me like that. That is not true. You don't need any extra books. Everything that we need is in this book. Why does he quote from this book? Because it makes reference to all the things that happened during this time. And it says there, what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon and at the streams of the brooks that goes down to the dwelling of Ar, which is one of Moab's northernmost cities. And it's the idea of everything God did to bring them to this place. Most believe that the book was a collection of songs to remind Israel of God's supernatural provision when the odds were stacked against them. And so they would sing these songs, just like we sang songs tonight that are not inspired, very good songs, but not inspired or not scripture. They would sing songs too to remind them of God's faithfulness and his promise and his goodness. Now, if you have a different translation of your Bible, you might be saying, Pastor Will, mine doesn't say what he did in the Red Sea. Here's why. That's a horrible translation. It's the word vateb, and it has... I don't know why they wrote what he did in the Red Sea here. I don't know why the King James folks did that. And, you know, and anyone, if they ever come and tell you the King James Bible is the only Bible that's right, is the only Bible that, that you should read, please tell them to grow up. I'm serious. Tell them to stop because they are speaking out of so much ignorance when they say something like that. And I don't mean that harshly. I have people come to me all the time and they're King James only folks and God bless them. They love Jesus. That's great. But they come to me and they want to argue with me. And I just, I listen and I go, you don't understand anything about this. You heard someone tell you these things and they're totally off and you're just regurgitating what they're saying. You know, there are many things. I I use an old King James. It's what I grew up on. It's what I started to memorize. It's what I feel comfortable with. It is a great translation, but it's not the original text and therefore it's not inspired. Neither is your new King James, your NIV. They, the translations themselves are not inspired, but they are faithful. Many of them, most of them are faithful representations of the things that were inspired. So you can read and know it's God's word. The fact that this means 
in Vateb instead of at the Red Sea doesn't change anything theologically, okay? I don't know why they translated it that way. Maybe they didn't understand the word right back then. But if you have a newer translation, it will say something different. Now, most people believe Vateb was a fortress in Moab that God, you know, he just provided for them as they went around. Ar, it mentions that as well. Uh, it mentions the brooks of the Arnon, how God took care of them every step of the way. And we know that that's what that's referring to because when we go to Deuteronomy chapter 2, it explains a little bit more to us. So look at Deuteronomy 2 verse 29 again. And it explains that just as Esau, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, helped Israel out with food and sold food to them, it says, and the Moabites, which dwelt in Ar, they helped Israel out too and sold food to them too. The idea here is that God was providing for his people. Now, did God provide for his people at the Red Sea? Yes, so the statement's still true. But that's probably not the best translation there. The idea here is what he did as they were journeying around the Moabites as well. They had to take that long detour through a desert instead of cutting through Moab, even though they probably could have defeated them because we're gonna see him defeat them later on. But that's a whole different story. But even though they probably could have defeated them, God took care of them in the detour, in the hard way, in the difficult way, just like he'll take care of you and me when we're in that difficult way. He will provide for our needs just like he provided for them. Did the detour pose great challenges? Yes. Did it require God to come through for them in a way that there seemed to be no way? Yes. But God did come through, didn't he? And that means he'll come through for you as well might ask you tonight, are you on a hard road right now? You know, are you a little bit out of the way? You think, Lord, where are we going? You know, listen, are you trusting him that he'll come through for you in that way? I promise you, he will. He always does. Maybe you might be thinking to yourself, oh, thank God I'm not there anymore, man. I'm done with that detour. Have you just finished a detour and emerged from it by God's supernatural care? Good, but don't take your eyes off him now. Don't think, well, we got this now. You know, better times, I found at least, can be, one of our greatest temptations because in the times where we're struggling, we know we need help and we cry out to him. It's those times where things are going good that we kind of tend to coast and we don't seek his face like we need to. Well, verse 16. So from there, they went to Beir. So they've begun to make the Western turn. They don't cross the river yet. They begin to wake that, make that Western turn. So they're heading now. They're gonna be going, going around here, making this, they're coming around here. They probably didn't make this. I don't know why they did that little dot there, but they're probably coming around this way and beginning to make the Western turn. And so as they do that, they come to a place called Be'er. Now, Be'er, it simply means well. Like Be'er Sheba, it means the well that was at Sheba. So anytime you see that word in the Old Testament, it just means well. So what's interesting is they don't give this place any other name because it was nowhere. It was in the middle of nowhere and it was, had nothing, nothing was there. So they named the place after the well that they find there. It was nothing and nowhere before this little miracle. Now, what's interesting, you say, what do you mean little miracle? For that is the well whereof the Lord spoke unto Moses and said, gather the people together and I will give them water. Prior to this, what happens every time Israel needs water? They start complaining, right? Whining and moaning. Moses, why'd you bring us here? There's nothing here. This time, they don't do that. And when they get there, the Lord says, guess what I've got cooked up? Gather everybody together. I want to provide water for the people. And so all the people gather together and the Lord provides. God gathers them together to witness a miracle. And instead of whining about their situation, the story's different this time. Israel sings with a thankful heart. 
And so when they see the water, the well that there was no well before, then Israel sang the song and they're seeing the water start to come out. They said, spring up. We need a lot of water. Spring up, oh well. Sing you unto it. Everybody, let's worship the Lord for this. Sing, spring up, oh well. The princes, I don't know how it went. The princes dig the well. The nobles, oh, the people digged it. It doesn't rhyme, so I don't know. By the direction of the lawgiver with their staves. You know, I don't know how it went, but they sang this song. It was a worship song that they did. It was the first from their new album. And from the wilderness then, they went to Matanah. Here, God provides for them. What I find interesting is that God is the one who tells Moses, because it says that as we are instructed by the lawgiver, God tells Moses, he's the lawgiver, and ultimately God's the lawgiver, of course, and tells the leaders where to dig, and the leaders go out and they start it, and then the water just begins to spring out. I don't think the Moabites missed a well. They didn't miss a, a big well on the northern border because water is priceless in that region of the world. Anywhere there was water, there was a city. That's just how it is. If you, like Jordan today gets a large percentage, about 60% of their water from Israel because Israel controls the Jordan River. And so they have a deal with Israel where they get a, a large percentage of that water. Israel actually exports more of that water than they use themselves. So on Jordan, which modern-day Jordan is this whole area. This is all modern-day Jordan. There's not a lot of water over there. So the Moabites wouldn't have just missed a well. So this was a supernatural miracle that we're either God created a well here, a spring, or the spring was so far down that no one could find it naturally. But either way, God did something that they couldn't and he met their need. I think that's interesting because trusting God doesn't mean everything falls into place nice and neat. You might find yourself, you say, God, you led me here and there's nothing. This is nowhere. Like, why are we here? And yet the Lord says, there's a well you can't see. There's provision you don't even know about yet. I've got this. Keep trusting me and watch me do a miracle. Now, this could have been way different. You know, Israel could have grown discouraged by the disappointment of no water in, the ni- in, you know, in this nicer region and taken their eyes off the Lord and raged from the stress of that situation. But they don't. They wait on the Lord to do his thing And then they respond correctly to that disappointment. They trust him and they worship. Test number one passed, right? They're victorious here. They have a spiritual victory here where they trust the Lord and he comes through like he always does. You know, that's what God longs to do in our lives. You know, when things don't fall into place nice and lately and we're in those dry and difficult situations that we trust him to take care of us. And when he does, we sing for joy because we've trusted him to do so. How many times have you not trusted the Lord to take care of you and all of a sudden he comes through and you're like, oh, it's not very easy to sing at that moment, is it? Because you feel like a loser. You're just like, why didn't I trust the Lord? It's difficult to find joy in that situation, even though God took care of you. Because you know, in your heart of hearts, you took matters into your own hands. And God took care of you anyway. It was in spite of you, not because you were just simply trusting him. There's a great joy to waiting on the Lord and then watching him come through. And Israel experiences that here. Do you realize that you don't have to be stressed out all the time? That's not our calling as Christians. That's not a gift of the Holy Spirit. Stress. You know, I said, but I've got bills, Pastor Will. You don't know about my bills. I know. You do. But your loving father knows too. He knows all about those things long before they were even going to end up in your mailbox. And he loves you. And he wants to take care of you. First Peter 5, 6, and 7, it says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and cast your cares on him for what? He cares for you. You're not meant to carry those burdens around. Throw them on him. He's more than capable of handling them. God is faithful even when we remain faithless. This is what the Bible tells us. And while we can miss out on many blessings that come from obeying God the first time, 
We need not fear that past failures will mean God is never going to work in our lives again. God is merciful. He longs to bless you. The true blessing of just knowing God, being in His presence, trusting His nature and goodness, these will never go away. All we must do is put our whole trust in Him. This is living in victory. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.